Comic book, comic book, does whatever a book does. Read by us while drinking, incoherent rambling. Look out, this is our podcast. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the SJW Comic Book Club X Minisode number four. Usually on our show, we have three hosts on an episode, but in the X-Minisodes, it's just me, Monte, talking about X-Men comics as I read through the X-Men from the beginning up to the present. To hear my discussion with the other hosts, Veronica and Melissa, tune in Thursday to hear us discuss Runaways, Pride and Joy, the debut storyline of the teen group Runaways. In X-Minisodes, I just focus on some stories from the X-Men, and this week I've got three stories that are going to close out my time in the Silver Age. All three of these are from 1969, and they're going to be X-Men number 62 to 63, Strangers in a Savage Land, X-Men number 64, The Coming of Sunfire, and X-Men number 65, Before I'd Be Slave. So starting with the first story, X-Men number 62 through 63, Strangers in a Savage Land. This was written by Roy Thomas and drawn by Neil Adams. The story starts with Angel plummeting to the ground in the Savage Land. In a flashback, we see that Angel traveled to the Savage Land to help the X-Men after waking up from an attack by Carl Lycos in the previous story arc. Upon arriving in the Savage Land, Angel is attacked by pterodactyls and nearly killed after falling to the ground. However, he's found and rescued by the mysterious creator who weirdly changes his costume before. It's a subtle change. It's just like a color change, but you can clearly see that he's wearing a different outfit. I'm not sure why the creator would change his clothes, and I'm not sure why he's not even weirded out by it. He doesn't even mention it. Someone else mentions it later in the story. But while he's being rescued, the X-Men, who are in the Savage Land searching for the body of Carl Lycos, are attacked by a Tyrannosaurus. They defeat the dinosaur handily, but they're then attacked by Kazar, the Tarzan-like king of the Savage Land. They learn that the Savage Land is currently in a state of civil war as a group of artificially created mutants are attacking villages throughout the Savage Land. The group is then attacked by that very group of mutants and some tribesmen that they're leading, but they're also able to defeat them with Kazar's help. Meanwhile, Angel talks to the creator who tells him that Kazar is evil and trying to destroy his life's work. He says that the mutants who serve him are naturally occurring mutants who have been persecuted by the Savage Land tribes. So Angel believes him, believes that the creator is sort of a Professor X type figure, and he sets out to stop the X-Men from interfering with his work. He's hoping that he can convince the X-Men to not attack the creator and his mutants, and instead to attack Kazar and stop him from interfering with what the creator is doing. What Angel doesn't know is that the creator is actually Magneto, and he is planning on using the artificially created mutants to conquer the Savage Land and then the world. Now, this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because there's only about six of these artificially created mutants, which is not nearly enough to conquer the world. And also, Magneto's not like arming the tribesmen with modern weapons or anything like that. He's just, I guess he's planning on taking over the world with these people who are using sticks and clubs to fight. But Angel pretty quickly figures out that the creator was lying and unites with the X-Men and Kazar to attack his compound. They break through, but then they're subdued by his newest mutant creation, Lorelei, who has the power to hypnotize men with her song. Her powers have no impact on Jean Grey, however, who uses her telekinesis to destroy Magneto's machines. The destruction of those machines causes the mutants to revert back to savages, which is their word, not mine. And Magneto is seemingly crushed under the machines, which 
I don't know why he was crushed. He can control metal, so it seems like he would just be able to stop them from falling on him, but he didn't do that. He just sat there and let them crush him. So overall, I will say this isn't, to me, a great story, but the art is pretty good, and it's also mercifully very brief. There's not a whole lot that happens in it. It's not super complicated or anything like that, even though it's kind of convoluted. I find the Savage Land mutates to be extremely boring. As I was reading this story, I was like, I promise I've seen, like, I know I've seen these characters before. And I think there's another story arc in Silver Age X-Men that's very similar, where it's not Magneto that's doing it, but there's someone who has manipulated the genetics of a group of criminals and turned them into animal-like animal into an animal like villain group i want to say it's the animan or something stupid like that but yeah it definitely seemed like i had seen the savage land mutates before even though i hadn't at least not in what i've read up to this point i have seen they do come back in later stories but i don't know they're just they're they're a very boring group also this is pretty much the least interesting version of magneto he his plan doesn't really make a whole lot of sense it doesn't have anything to do with like his normal rhetoric of mutants are better than humans or, you know, mutants are the next step in evolution. There's no hint of that. He just like wants to take over the world with this group of people that definitely would not be able to take over the world. So it's kind of a boring plot. And then it's also nonsense. Like this is the stupidest kind of Magneto as well. Like why was Magneto concealing his identity in the Savage Land? Nobody there knows him. It's not like any it's not like Kazar knows who Magneto is or it's not like the rest of the world was investigating. Everybody thinks that he's dead. So why why was he concealing his identity? Why wouldn't he just kill Angel or let him die? He hints at wanting to use Angel for some kind of plan, but then he never does it. He just I guess his master plan was to make to have Angel convince the X-Men not to fight him, but also he could have, if he would have just killed Angel, then the X-Men wouldn't even, you know, know where to fight him. So I don't know what the, the point of all that was. And then, like I said before, there's not enough of the mutates to conquer the world, and he's not arming the Savage Land tribesmen with normal weapons. He doesn't seem to be building any kind of way to transport them out of the Savage Land, which the Savage Land is in the middle of Antarctica, so they're not going to be able to just walk somewhere. You would need to have some way to transport them, but he's not building that. He's not arming them. So it's just kind of a silly story, but not in the good silly way. Jean Grey does start to get some characterization in this story outside of the love triangle between Scott and whatever the other guy's name was. I don't really remember his name. I think it's Ted Roberts, I think. But Jean Grey does kind of get some characterization as a grounding force on the group. She's always stopping the male members of the group from fighting and doing stupid things. So that's kind of a characterization. It still fits into the girl of the group trope. But um, it is some characterization outside of just, I love Scott, I love Ted, I love them both, but I have to choose. It does get points for that, but overall, it's a pretty boring story and not that great. So moving on to the second story on my list today, we've got X-Men number 64, which was also written by Roy Thomas and drawn by Don Heck. This story shows the debut of Sunfire, a mutant with the ability to shoot plasma blasts and also to fly. 
It's a pretty straightforward story. Sunfire's uncle, Tomo Yoshida, has raised him to be radically anti-Western, but Sunfire's father, Saburo Yoshida, is a Japanese diplomat to the United States. Sunfire and his uncle hate the United States because of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which led to Sunfire being born a mutant and also led to the death of his mother. So Sunfire attacks the Capitol building and his father tries to stop him, only to be murdered by his uncle. His uncle shoots him. Sunfire then kills his uncle with a blast of fire and turns himself into the authorities. And that's basically all that happens in this story. The fight scenes between Sunfire and the X-Men when they're at the Capitol building are really well drawn. But this is a story that's very much about Sunfire with the X-Men as kind of background characters. You don't really, we don't really learn a whole lot about the X-Men in this story. It's pretty much just about Sunfire. Also, I fully expected this story to be a lot more racist than it actually was. Um, in previous stories, there have been words used that we would consider slurs today. However, in this story, nothing really stood out to me as glaringly offensive. The way that Sunfire's uncle is drawn is a little bit suspect, but other than that, there's really nothing in the story that's offensive or bad. Um, it also explores an interesting subject, albeit a little clumsily, in examining the potential for reconciliation between Americans and the people in the countries we fight. In 1969, this would be a very timely subject since America's involvement in the Vietnam War peaked in 1969. However, it is kind of weird that this story is really look looking at how the victims of America's military actions should respond to their victimization. It doesn't really do anything to hold the United States accountable for, you know, what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the huge amount of human suffering that was caused. And that continued to be caused even after the bombs were dropped because of the residual radiation and... Uh, radiation poisoning and all of that stuff. It doesn't really reckon with any of that, but it does at least broach the subject. You know, it does at least bring it up, which is commendable, I guess. This story has a publication date of January 1970, which means it would have been released in late 1969. At first, I thought that this was a silly storyline for that time because the US and Japan had very stable, normalized relations at that time. But then I did some research into the history of anti-Western protests and sentiments in Japan, and they lasted a lot longer than I at first expected. So by 1968, Japan was the second largest capitalist economy in the world and had very normalized relations with the United States, as I said before. The occupation of the United States, the, or I'm sorry, the occupation of Japan after World War II lasted up until 1952, and the United States basically totally restructured Japan economically and politically. And that did cause a lot of resentment in the 50s, but by the 1960s, most of that resentment about that had died down. However, during the 19... Uh, 60s, there were significant protests of America's continued military presence in Japan. It wasn't an occupation per se, but the U.S. still did have a lot of troops in Japan, and Japan didn't have its own army. The defense of Japan was basically the responsibility of the United States military. Japan wasn't allowed to participate in its own defense. So these protests in the 60s led to the renegotiating of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, which gave Japan more autonomy in where U.S. troops are deployed in Japan. It did give Japan more, not necessarily independence, but more sovereignty. Japan had more of, of an ability to say where they wanted U.S. troops to be located and how many U.S. troops they would accept on their soil. However, protests about the American military continued well into the 70s over issues like America's military presence, as well as the Vietnam War. 
uh, the Japanese were pretty against the war in Vietnam because they felt in a lot of cases that it, I mean, there were a multitude of reasons, but one of the biggest reasons was that they felt that it was a threat to the stability of the region. And since Japan didn't have its own army and didn't have any ability to defend itself, obviously that's something that they're going to be upset about. So the story actually does make sense. Uh, historically, there was a pretty strong anti-Western sentiment in some facets of the Japanese population. So it's you know, once again, it's cool that they were willing to bring that up and that they actually explore that uh, in a story, even if it's done a little bit clumsily. So finally, as an aside, I'm kind of surprised by the lack of anti-war messages in X-Men comics of the 1960s. American combat troops started being deployed in Vietnam in 1964, and the Tet Offensive, which made it clear that the U.S. was not winning the war, occurred in 1968. So, it's something that I would expect to have come up before now. Like I said, this story was written at the end of 1969, but this is the first time that the X-Men comics have even mentioned something that is Vietnam adjacent. And the message here isn't even explicitly an anti-war message. It's more about how the victims of America's military actions should respond to their victimization, which is very weird. I would expect just with the legacy that the X-Men has for there to be pretty strong anti-war messages in X-Men comics at this time, but there just weren't. All right, so the final story that I've got for you guys today is X-Men number 65, Before I'd Be Slave. This was written by Dennis O'Neill and drawn by Neil Adams, and this is actually the last story that I read from the Silver Age. This story opens with the original X-Men, Cyclops, Beast, Iceman, Angel, and Jean Grey arriving back at the X-Mansion after their fight with Sunfire. They find Havok and Polaris there in full costume, demanding that they go inside and change into their uniforms. The X-Men insist that they're too tired from their previous fights and they don't feel like changing into their uniforms, and a brief fight starts because the X-Men don't want to go on a mission and it seems like Havok and Polaris are being rude in their insistence that they do. After the fight is broken up by Jean Grey, the original X-Men go inside the mansion to change because they realize that Havok and Polaris are being serious and there's something that's very important for them to talk about. So Havok then briefs the original X-Men on an alien race known as the Xenox, who have created a weapon that will allow them to transport their entire planet to the Earth's solar system in order to invade the Earth. When the X-Men don't believe him, Professor X reveals himself to his former students. And this is where I need to apologize about something. I forgot to mention that Professor X actually died in issue 42. So for most of these stories that I've been going over, Professor X hasn't been mentioned because he's dead or they believe that he's dead. However, the professor reveals that he was alive the whole time, and he was replaced by the mutant shapeshifter Changeling in order to fake his death and de devise a plan to counter the Xenox invasion. Why that required him to fake his death is beyond me, but he's back now and ready for action. Professor Xavier orders the X-Men to train for a few hours before attacking the Xenox scout ship, which they do. And then Professor X uses his telepathic powers to channel all of the positive thoughts of the human race, filter them through Lorna Dane to be directed to the X-Men and the Xenox scout ship in the South Pole using her magnetic powers. The energy from those thoughts is then directed through Jean Grey's telepathic powers into Havok, who, quote, boosts them with his cosmic rays and sends them into Cyclops, who, quote, 
translates them into laser-like optic blasts and aims them at the menacing sky where the Xenox planet is approaching. Iceman uses his powers to keep the room from overheating from the sheer intensity of the optic blast. In the end, the Xenox are deterred by the positive thoughts of the human race, which they find distasteful. Apparently, the Xenox are a species that really thrive on hate and anger and aggression. They flee the solar system in order to find another planet to enslave with a population that's less optimistic and happy. Meanwhile, Professor X collapses from the strain. He's in a coma, and that's where the story ends. Yeah, this is not a great story. And I think, especially because it is one of the last stories of the Silver Age, it's very disappointing. Uh, it makes very little sense. The ending doesn't make sense. The conflict in the beginning doesn't make sense. The premise doesn't make sense. It's just not a good story. But at least it does bring Professor X back into the fold and lets us know that he's alive. With him faking his death, I there's no real explanation even. He he says that he does it he did it to give himself time to create this plan to counter the invasion, but I don't understand why pretending to be dead would give him more time. I guess maybe that allowed him to turn leadership of the team over to Cyclops, but you don't have to fake your death to step down from leading the team so that you can work on something else. I don't I don't know why that made sense. Also doesn't make sense that Havok's powers would boost the thoughts of the entire population or that Cyclops's powers would be able to send those thoughts up to the Xenox planet. Yeah, it's just it's not a good story. It's nonsense. And it's a very disappointing end to the Silver Age, which has been surprisingly good. There, you know, there have been a few stories that I've read. Almost all the stories that I've read have been pretty solid, but there have been a few that I really, really enjoyed, like the Juggernaut story or the Factor 3 saga. Stories that were much better than I expected them to be given the era that they were written in. So I think this story was a little more what I was expecting from the 60s. So I guess it does make sense that it ended on this note, but I would have really liked for the Silver Age to go out with more of a bang than this. It, it's kind of less than a fizzle. It's just a complete dud. But overall, I'd say the Silver Age was surprisingly good for the X-Men. They've introduced some very interesting villains and concepts that are going to be further developed in the decades to come. Things like the Savage Land, Sauron, the Brotherhood of Mutants, Magneto, the concept of the Sentinels and anti-mutant prejudice, all of these really, really interesting concepts that are going to come back in later stories. But uh, this is actually the last story of the 60s and the Silver Age. There is another X-Men story that includes the X-Men fighting the Hulk, but I didn't really want to read that one, just to be totally honest. It's also not really that great of a story, and it has even less of an impact on the plot on the overall universe of the X-Men than Before I'd Be Slave does. At least Before I'd Be Slave brings back Professor X, but there's nothing of import that happens in the X-Men versus the Hulk issue. I think the X-Men also appear in some Avengers stories throughout the 70s, but this is actually the end of the X-Men for a while. After issue 66, it goes into reprints, and it basically stays in reprints up until 1975. So for about four to five years, there's no new X-Men stories that are being written. They're all just reprints of previous stories. 
And the reason for that is that the X-Men weren't that popular of a group when they were first being written. They were kind of a side team and you know, the real important teams were the Fantastic Four and the Avengers. The X-Men were just kind of a, a sideshow, sort of. So Marvel stopped publishing new X-Men stories until 1975. Uh, so that's where I'm going to pick up is with Giant Size X-Men, Volume 1, Issue 1. It's published in 1975, and it's the story that sees the introduction of the iconic X-Men like Storm, Wolverine, Colossus, and Nightcrawler. So I look forward to reading that. But before we get to that, I do have to rank these. Um, these three stories, I will say, were not as strong for me personally, in my opinion, were not as strong as the ones that I've read so far. Uh, but just a reminder, I've read nine stories so far. I'm not going to list them all. But at the top, we have X-Men number 12 through 13, Where Walks the Juggernaut, followed by the Factor 3 saga. And then at the bottom, down at number eight, we have X-Men number four through five, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and X-Men numbers 54 through 56, The Living Pharaoh. So to start with Strangers in a Savage Land, I think that this story is one of the bad ones that I've read. Like I said, I found the villains to be really boring, and then also the story to be kind of nonsense. Magneto's plan didn't make any sense, and it just wasn't the kind of Magneto that I like to see. So I'm going to put Strangers in a Savage Land behind the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. So it is going to be the new number nine on my list. Nine out of ten, so second from the bottom. And that's really just because the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants was also kind of a boring story, but at least Magneto's plot, you know, made sense. Next, the X-Men number 64, The Coming of Sunfire. I think that of the three that I read for this week, this one was the best. I'm going to put it just above the City of Mutants story, which is the story that introduces Polaris, because I think the introduction of Sunfire is a bit more interesting. Um, and the concepts that they bring up in The Coming of Sunfire are a bit more interesting than City of Mutants, even if those concepts aren't necessarily fleshed out the best that they could be. So new number seven is going to be X-Men number 64, The Coming of Sunfire. And then last and last and least is going to be X-Men number 65, Before I Be Slave. And I'm going to put this at the end of the list at the new number 12. And that's just because... Like I said, I just really, really, really did not enjoy reading this issue. I can't really stress enough how little sense it made. It wasn't fun. There was nothing fun about it. There was no, there was nothing funny. It was just a really bad story, basically from start to finish. I think it's the first one that I've read that I just did not like. The other ones, even The Living Pharaoh, I didn't necessarily love it, but it didn't make me roll my eyes at multiple points. So yeah, new number 12 is going to be X-Men number 65, Before I'd Be Slave, which is unfortunately the story that closes out the Silver Age for us. But that's all that I've got for you guys this week. As I said before, be sure to check out our main episode on Thursday. We talked about the Runaways, the issues that introduced that new team and it was a pretty good episode we talked about family structure and you know the responsibilities that children have to their parents so hopefully you guys like it and hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode as well thanks for listening bye